talked about whether that's soft security, implementing search and rescue agreements, the oil spill response and prevention agreements. Uh, it all brings into play Arctic maritime safety, Arctic shipping. And I think when one thinks of Arctic shipping, two words come to mind, Lawson Brigham. He is the, the, and you don't say that very often in Washington, the expert on Arctic shipping. Lawson is currently a distinguished professor of geography and Arctic policy at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. But uh, we have known and come to uh, incredibly admire his work uh, as chair of the Arctic Council's Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment, AMSA, which really is the definitive study on, on maritime shipping. Uh, but uh, Lawson's heart beats for the United States Coast Guard, I think, uh, even though he's his second encore career, third career. Uh, Lawson has served in the United States Coast Guard, um, and he, um, and I love his bio, and I just want to read a segment. He has participated in 18 Arctic and Antarctic expeditions, including uh, as commander of the Polar Sea, which is in, still in mothballs, but the Polar Star is out, um, and, and was, um, this is when the Polar Sea became the first American surface ship to reach the North Pole. So I could just listen for the next 20 minutes of Lawson explaining that little uh, journey. But he's going to help us understand uh, the Arctic shipping, uh, where, where, where we are today, where we're going in the future, how to strengthen cooperation and the role of the Arctic Council. And uh, Lawson, needless to say, you traveled very far to be with us, and we are so grateful. So with that, please join me in welcoming Lawson Brigham. Thanks, Heather and uh, Andy, for uh, having me. Uh, they, they put us across the street in the Beacon Hotel here, and I, I worked here four times in my Coast Guard career with the Arctic Research Commission. Shortest commute I ever had was walking across the street uh, today, this morning, to, to the conference. I guess, uh, there we go. <clears throat> I actually don't like the words Arctic shipping because, I, 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 interesting enough, I get two words of Arctic shipping from you, Heather, because I don't think it expresses what we're talking about in the Arctic. And in order to look at, and, and, and I think the Arctic Council has got it right, you have to have a holistic look at Arctic marine use at the beginning of the 21st century, and I'll try to, to get into that. I've talked about, uh, I'll talk about challenges and opportunities and there are many, uh, many challenges, but uh, a few uh, uh, opportunities as well. Uh, this is what I'd like to cover, some global perspectives, and uh, talk a little bit about access. Um, Arctic sea ice retreat is not driving Arctic shipping. Actually, global commodities prices are, and natural resource development is the prime driver that we found out in the AMSA. I'll talk to you a little bit about current marine use, and uh, I, I can't escape talking about the AMSA and its relevance today. And then uh, I'll end with some words about the U.S. Uh, chairmanship of the Arctic Council from a perspective of maritime issues. And then I'll add more later in the, in the panel. But before I do, I, I, I was at a conference in Southeast Asia a year and a half ago, uh, several expert presentations from China, Japan, Korea and Singapore, all four presenters, all, all men, uh, 
uh, marine engineering technical types. <clears throat> and they showed about 16 slides. I counted them up. Uh, and they called the place the High North. And they also had no ice in any of the slides. So at the end of the uh, presentation, I, I couldn't escape without actually being somewhat civil and asking, one, where is this place, High North? And two, I, I think we're actually missing something in the slides. They want to be too you know, sniveling about it all. And then I went on a long harangue about the place is called the Arctic. This device that the Norwegians use for the High North is fine. I understand for Tromso may not be Arctic, but it's High North. It's okay, but the place has always been called, and the right term is the Arctic. Uh, kind of interesting. But my message is the misinformation is out there, uh, and maybe the Arctic Council for one body needs to do a better job at communicating to the world some various uh, specifics. We have a secretariat. United States, in its political leadership of the Arctic Council, should exercise that secretariat and focus the secretariat on communicating with the world. I, I'm a real ardent supporter, one of the foot soldiers of the Arctic Council of the past, and the worst part of the Arctic Council didn't communicate to the world. It's not normally the diplomat's business, but the business of the Arctic Council, I hope, is to communicate better through, throughout the world all of what's happening at, at, at the top of the planet. And what is happening at the top of the planet? And of course, the place, uh, the climate change is profound. So profound that maybe it gets attention all the time. What doesn't get attention is the global connection of Arctic natural resources to global markets. And that's what drives shipping and other entities. And fishing gets some attention and the future of shipping in the north. So when I, I'm always asked, well, what's happening in the Arctic besides climate change? And I say, oh, a lot. And part of that list is the last item, which we talked about this morning, need to talk about even more. It's about the indigenous people and their rights and their voice. And it's being heard, whether it's heard enough in art, it remains to be seen, but nonetheless. And then, of course, we have some regional um, geopolitics with the adjudication of the seabed. So it's a mix of stuff, very dynamic, complex place under great change. But it's not all about climate change, even though I kind of speak as a climate change scientist, CI scientist, it's about global economics. And, and I hope that message uh, in our chairmanship, in the United States chairmanship of the Arctic Council, uh, we take on some of those issues through the uh, maritime lens. Uh, just uh, another slide, I don't really need to tell you all, but uh, need to tell most of the audiences I deal with that 58% 50, of the Arctic is in fact ocean. Uh, you know, and, and that's an important fact. And uh, clearly, the place has certain uh, legal and sovereign rights issues related to, to that ocean. It's also, uh, on the map you'll see, it's about 2,000 nautical, roughly 2,000 nautical miles across the top of the world. If you go directly across, a little less than 3,000 nautical miles across the top of the world, really go through the Northwest Passage or the uh, uh, Northern Sea Route. And if it's covered by 2.1, 1 1.8 meters of ice after the first year ice disappears mid-century, it's a long way for navigating 3,000 miles across the top of the world. Technically feasible, economically unfeasible. So I mean, it, it, it's still a barrier, but nonetheless, all of the challenges we need to take on. 
uh, lots of linkages, some numbers of what's up in the Arctic. 10% of international fisheries uh, happens in the Arctic, in the Barents Sea and in the, uh, in the Bering Sea. Modest fisheries in northern Canada and uh, off Greenland and Iceland, but primarily it's Bering and, and, and Barents. You can see the other numbers. Uh, palladium, 40% is located in Norilsk and so is one-fifth of the world's nickel in Norilsk. <clears throat> Norilsk is also the fourth largest producer of copper. Diamonds, Russian Arctic, Canadian Arctic, platinum, all in Norilsk. Zinc, all in Alaska. 10% of the world's zinc is actually from the Red Dog Mine. <clears throat> and the estimated hydrocarbons from the USGS study, which was an integrated study in 2008, showed that the, the place is a gas province, and yet it does have some oil, and that's what people are after in the Kara Sea, offshore United States, offshore Greenland, etc. cetera. Uh, rare earths in uh, uh, Canada, some in Greenland and some in Russia, and coal and fresh water are also commodities of the future, particularly uh, fresh water, that uh, could be carried by ship or pipeline to world markets if, if necessary in the future. Uh, the global marine tourism industry is very insignificant in the Arctic, although um, there's a niche there. And then uh, trade to northern communities and the infrastructure development um, there is part of this connection to the global economy. Lots of interesting media coverage on this topic, some hype, some correct, some different messages. The Chinese ship, which was mentioned this morning, got tremendous press and hype around the world, uh, and yet uh, a few months before, the most historic, well, mo most of us who follow this stuff, uh, voyage was of the Ob River, LNG icebreaking carrier, November, December, escorted by three nuclear icebreakers from Hammerfest, Norway, to um, Tabata, Japan. That's where the connection of global resources. A small, um, heavy lift ship from China gets the press, and yet a large, complicated ship in a historic voyage late in the year connecting Norway to uh, Japan with a load of LNG from Hammerfest uh, certainly is greater, greater significance than the Chinese ship, but that, that's the way it's played out. 100 times to the North Pole. Yes, there have been 100 surface ships uh, last summer, <clears throat> two-thirds of them for, for tourism, all, all in the Russian icebreakers, nuclear icebreakers, and uh, um, one-third for science. And then finally, a, a very interesting article last um, summer in the Moscow Times, which articulated the, what they call massive uh, buildup of the uh, northern sea route. But the most operative phrase that I took out of it was from Russian experts who actually deal with the issues, not, not some of the politicians and others who kind of hype the issue of the Northern Sea Route. The Northern Sea Route is a supplement, seasonal supplement, seasonal is important, three to six months season, seasonal supplement to the Suez Canal. There's no way that the Northern Sea Route is going to take over the Suez or affect the, the uh, Panama Canal, but you wouldn't know that from reading in the newspapers. The new maritime Arctic is represented in many senses by, uh, by this offshore terminal, the Varende Terminal in the Petrora Sea. In order to get this terminal developed over the past, well, decade, it's been in operation for now five years, required uh, technology transfer, international investment, and lots of players listed here. 
the operator of, of this, uh, these ships, three ships that sail between the Varende Terminal and uh, Murmansk in a shuttle system year-round, were all built by Samsung, the self, cell phone builders, build ships also using technology from the United States, Canada, and of course Finland, uh, and, and of course the operator is the largest uh, ship owner in Russia, Sokomflot, and the rig itself, the, the, the offshore terminal, I should say, correct myself, uh, that uh, was uh, at least owned and operated by Lukoil and ConocoPhillips, so the technology transfer of the investment was from uh, ConocoPhillips. This is the new Maritime Arctic, a good poster, it's not a cartoon really, it's a, a good poster child of uh, what, did, what, what is required in this case, in particular, in the offshore and the involvement of an international community in, in this new Arctic. A uh, few words about uh, access. We can look at these passive microwave Im images and just uh, over this period of time, 79 to 2012, uh, it's a couple of years, it's not in geological scale is it significant, except a third of a century, 33 years here, great change in the openness of the Arctic in the summer. These, these two images are from the, uh, the minimum extent of sea ice in, in September. <clears throat> but really, the images we should see but never see, except maybe a few presentations at the Arctic Council, are these images. This is the average of the last three years' uh, coverage in the wintertime. I probably should have included December. So from December to July, places fully ice-covered, not even partially ice-covered, still. Profound changes in thickness, extent, character of the sea ice, places ice-covered. So that has technical um, and, and regulatory issues for all of the Arctic. The place is covered with ice. I mean, I don't need to tell you all that here, but when I'm in Singapore, I needed to tell people that, and show them some slides like this, say, eh, I don't think that the, all the lines and the global trade routes across the Arctic without any ice is, uh, is real. Sorry to say, but here are a couple from research done at UCLA with some colleagues, uh, Larry Smith and uh, one of his PhD students, very bright guy, Stevenson. And uh, this shows what the reality is today. The red indicates low-class polar ships, modest polar ice-breaking capability that can actually go into the central Arctic Ocean and could cross today in September and October. All the blue lines represent normal open water ships, if, if in fact, the Arctic coastal states would allow open water ships to actually cross the Arctic Ocean. And that's a big if. When we apply the polar code in a new regime, all SOLAS and MARPOL-class ships must have certificates, must have a polar class, must be capable. So we're not going to see too many of the world's open water ships traverse right across the top. Uh, they may try. We'll see. But then uh, some of this research, and I should tell you how these, these maps are generated, the, the ships are driven across and through the sea ice simulations of the global climate models. And, and so we're using output of the models which have their own warts and inaccuracies, whatever. But at least from a strategic point, we picked a model as a community model and we drove some ships across. Well, it looks like at mid-century, perhaps when there is no more multi-year ice and a place covered by first-year ice, entirely, uh, the capability of the polar class ships in the summertime is, is quite great. 
Now, there are no maps really with any lines on them, except for uh, Polo Class 1, which is Russian nuclear icebreakers, uh, that would show any capability across most of this area in the wintertime. <clears throat> Just to review where we are with marine use today in the Arctic in, in the summertime, of course, we have the world's largest nickel, mine, nickel uh, zinc mine, the Red Dog Mine, and on the other side, of course, in the Russian Arctic, uh, year-round tra traffic since 79 over to Norilsk and connecting Norilsk and Murmansk. And you add in, uh, I'll just add these in quickly here, marine tourism, the North Pole around Greenland, Svalbard for more than a century actually, and uh, Iceland. And not much in the United States maritime Arctic for tourism today. Fisheries we know, we hear, hear more about that, two large fisheries, several modest fisheries. The, the, the reason to add fisheries here, because we're talking about vessels that have discharges and emissions, whether they're under IMO or not, or under the coastal state jurisdiction, the fishing vessel fleets, which are the majority of vessels in the Arctic today, have their own impact on, on the ecosystems of, of the Arctic uh, marine environment. Oil and gas, of course, and uh, summer sea lift, hundreds of voyages up to the Canadian Arctic, uh, fewer voyages today, to the Russian Arctic, but that brings large ships to coastal communities. And then finally, adding on what, uh, some, uh, what John was telling us, John Farrell, and other exploration of the central Arctic Ocean, at the beginning of the 21st century in the summertime, we have almost every square kilometer of the top of the world traversed by surface ships, hard to believe. Of course, it's uh, not hard to believe. There are no rules and regulations for that to be happening, and the Polar Code is coming. But uh, nonetheless, this is the picture that we presented to the diplomats in the AMSA. Hey, the place is full of activity, and we need to move press forward on a range and a framework of policies. Now, just to take us a little bit closer to home here to, for Americans that are in the audience, and, and, and our Russian friends too, of course, this is the traffic level today, or last season, last year, calendar year, in the United States Maritime Arctic, the Bering Strait region, Chikaka, this region of, of the Arctic. And, and here is the image, and this is all tracked by AAS, the Marine Exchange of Alaska. You can see in this, this map on the U.S. side, all barge traffic, tug and barge traffic. You can see uh, near the center of the image uh, some commercial ships, cargo ships that go into the Red Dog Mine in Kivalina. There's a blue line into Kosovo Sound, but really all the large ship traffic is on the Russian side uh, on the Northern Sea Route coming up and approaching the Northern Sea Route, uh, turning to, to port, essentially, if you're headed north, uh, across the Russian Arctic, and, and vice versa, of course. Lots of traffic on the west end of St. Lawrence Island. So here's the picture, and that's likely to be the picture for this region of the world for the next two or three decades. The only thing that could change would be on the Russian side when, when and if our Russian colleagues extend the navigation season, perhaps into December, perhaps into June, and have maybe six, six month season, then we'll see more traffic on the, uh, on the Russian side. On the American side, it'll be traffic related to offshore development, the armada of ships, the hundreds of transits uh, related to the maybe three companies in the future, Statoil, ConocoPhillips, and uh, Shell. That will bring uh, lots of traffic. 
but there's no indication of um, uh, large numbers of ships coming on the American side uh, on transits through the Canadian Arctic. Uh, just a couple words about the AMSA, the importance of the AMSA, because the, the recommendations and, and some of the text were, were negotiated over a long period of time, uh, seven months plus, and, and that gave us a uh, framework for how to address the issues of protecting people in the place. We did use a scenarios process. Of course, the most important part of this effort, uh, likely, in, in the global context, is reminding the world that there are other users in the place, and they've been there for millennia, and they have very specific uses of the waterways and, and ownership and rights, and how you cross those, uh, those multiple uses now in the same waterway is, is one of the great challenges of the Arctic states. Uh, we, we had this scenarios process over a couple years, a bunch of workshops, and we did tease out the great number of uncertainties, or 130, you could probably come up with more, but here are 20, and I starred a couple. At the beginning of the AMSA, the price of oil was $147 a barrel. At the end of the AMSA, after four plus years of working on it, it was 55. Just that one uncertainty, today oil price was 106 today in the paper. So the, that range, that one uncertainty, uh, because oil is an Arctic natural resource of great value, can ultimately drive, quote, this term Arctic shipping. If we had a major disaster in the Arctic, uh, let, me, let me go back here, of which we did down in the Antarctic at the same time the AMSA was underway, we had the sinking of a, a small cruise ship there. But since AMSA, we've had some very large ship groundings in the Canadian Arctic, and of course the uh, searing images of the Costa Concordia on its side in waters that have been charted for several centuries. And as a mariner, hard to believe that that could happen one century after the Titanic, we have a large ship with loss of life. And of course, the Arctic states must do all in their power through IMO and other organizations to, to not let that happen. For the United States and the US Coast Guard, when the majority of the passengers on some of these cruise ships are Americans, uh, it should be a frontline issue. We did in our scenarios process, we're all pretty sharp, you know, and pretty smart. We said, ah, it's nuclear energy, it's taken over the world, and be less of Arctic offshore development. Well, of course, we didn't foresee in the scenarios process the tragedy in, in Japan and the influence on the world and Germany teasing away from nuclear energy. I mean, hard to new world, lots of uncertainties. And to come up with numbers of ships in the Arctic, which lots of people want to know, even during the Arctic Council in one of our sessions with the diplomats, one of the diplomats asked to, to know how many ships, he says, Captain Brigham, how many ships are gonna be through Bering Strait in 2025? I said, if I knew that, I surely wouldn't be telling you all. I'd be selling my wares and my great vision. I said, impossible to know unless you can cross all of the sectors and do some really heavy duty global economics. Very difficult to tell, great uncertainty. And then finally, the little, the start issue is if we do have some global agreements, i.e. polar code, that could change the dynamic in, in this uh, topic of Arctic shipping. We have this, this gouge, this crossing of, uh, of the major issues, and we teased out that governance, the lack of governance, or having rules-based system that, that Ambassador Bolton 
talked about and others. Uh, and that's about the polar code and other rules and regulations for the Arctic, crossed with natural resource development as a real driver. Some consternation about the word race, Arctic race. Maybe if I was to redo it, I might say rush, just to get away from the word race. But you can see the, the different storylines that we presented really to get everyone to think out of the box. What are some plausible, uh, we can tie the place up, polar preserve, we can have all kinds of marine areas where ships can't operate, uh, a bit counter to freedom of navigation, I would argue, but in history, when you think whaling and sealing, et cetera. But it was, I think that you have to keep this in context, it was a great thinking device and a great way to express, I, I think, a very complex issue of how to use uh, the marine world uh, in the modern Arctic context. So what we came up with a series of 17 recommendations, and of course the trick was how do you sell this stuff, all these lists of things you want to do to the world, and so we, we created these three um, thematic areas. And I just, I'll just run through and I'll be done in just a second here. Uh, the Arctic states themselves, before the AMSA, really didn't operate together and have unified positions at IMO, IHO, WMO, et cetera, et cetera. Now they do. And they're working very closely together. Very important to essentially lobby the rest of the world, apply leverage to the rest of the world on why we need Arctic-specific uh, rules and regulations, charts, et cetera. <clears throat> the IMO measures uniformity of government and passenger ship safety. I'll mention the polar code in a second. And then the SAR agreement, of course, was orchestrated by Ambassador Bolton and or his Russian colleague and the rest of the, using the Arctic Council as a facilitator, um, first up uh, important uh, treaty in, in the Arctic. A few comments about the IMO Polar Code. I was just a member of the US delegation in London last month. Uh, as an anecdote, I, I can't talk about all the deliberations, you're not supposed to, but I thought one is entertaining. There's a preamble to the code, and we try to insert some words. The code covers protection of the people on the ship and the ship itself and safety issues. It covers uh, cetaceans, and, and, it, and it covers the marine environment, the water, and what's missing. People, coastal communities. And after long discussions at the in some of the deliberations, the word people, not indigenous people, was inserted, and the words coastal communities, in the preamble, which is not binding. So you, you can, as part of my miscommunication to the world, the technical types, all good will and intention to have this polar code, really don't know a thing about the relationship of the use of the Arctic Ocean and by indigenous people in a relationship of ships. But we're, we're, the U.S. is trying to lead that correction along with Canada. Very vocal there that we need to get people engaged. So you roll this out to the world, the Polar Code, and talk about people in the Arctic. I, I think we have a problem, big challenge. Um, uh, the Polar Code, of course, is just an extension of conventions today. SOLAS, Safety of Life at Sea Convention, and MARPOL. Marine Pollution Convention. So we're just expanding, rolling it out with Arctic-specific regulations and rules to the Arctic. Uh, at least that's in theory. Now, the, uh, it's pretty much agreed upon now that next spring, uh, the pollution uh, portion will be adopted by the 
Marine Environmental Protection uh, Committee, and then the rollout will begin for implementation 2015, coincidental with the U.S. chairmanship. In force, hopefully, by 2016, 18. Uh, other issues, indigenous use and surveys, some of this has been accomplished with a little plus there. Community engagement, much more today on a full range of issues with shipping and its impacts on indigenous people. Uh, the, the Arctic Council has produced a, a really significant report on identifying eco, ecosystems and uh, cultural heritage regions, sensitive regions in the area. But where we haven't, uh, making some headway, as mentioned this morning on the Oil Spill Prevention Task Force, but marine mammal impacts have been meetings of the uh, International Whaling Commission. And, and reducing air emissions is another topic. And then finally, the, the issues that relate to infrastructure. Other than the northwest coast of Russia, coast of Iceland, and the coast of Norway, there isn't any infrastructure. Uh, you may think there is, but there isn't. Even communication holes in the Arctic we know. Uh, no very minimal search and rescue capability, environmental response, ace to navigation charts. Uh, the Arctic Ocean is charted uh, to about eight, nine percent uh, to navigation standards. So when you list the whole things that we need to do, and of course the price tag of that, where do we get that? Can all be public investment? Has to be pro private uh, public uh, partnerships in the, in the future. So there's a lot going on. Uh, I've starred the environmental response capacity because we do have an agreement exercising and implementing that agreement. And then the Arctic marine traffic system is another topic of interest to the Arctic states, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in just a second here. Um, the AMSA is still operative because the, the, the Arctic ministers through the senior Arctic officials keep asking, what's the implementation plan? I hope we'll do that again. Canada will report out, I think, at the next ministerial, and I hope that the United States will again report out and pass the baton to uh, our partner, Finland, uh, and maybe, maybe during the Finnish chair, we'll finish this thing up. But I hope that the U.S. will continue this. It is a strategic guide. But its most important aspect is it was negotiated on the, the uh, very technical subject, which we get agreement on, uh, was negotiated successfully and is being used in the Arctic Council. Well, here's for Ambassador Bolton and everyone here, some, some items. Uh, the most significant thing happening in the Arctic, I, I, I think, over the next few years is this polar code. Although viewed as arcane and technical, New regime for the Arctic. All soulless Marpole ships will have to conform, who come from around the world to use the place, the Arctic Ocean, will have to conform. I hope that the United States will have this as a top issue, uh, only in a sense of using its political capital to argue to the world, send the Coast Guard on the road around to the, all the Arctic states. This isn't a State Department thing per se, although whoever our envoy is will hopefully know and talk about this uh, maybe what some would consider arcane topic. Huge topic, new regime from the Arctic Ocean. And the United States is in the driver's seat as chair of the Arctic Council, and environmental security being one of the top things in the Arctic Council fits the profile. Easy one to do, it, it's just using our leverage, and I think all the Arctic states will be supportive of the United States leading this particular charge. I've mentioned continued implementation. Uh, there's, a, there's a missing link and it has to do with data on commercial shipping. And hopefully, we could have a working group in the Arctic Council 
uh, that would end up having some sort of binding agreement for the Arctic states to pass this data, maybe this could be orchestrated through the maritime organizations of the Arctic states, but it's a missing link. We want the data for risk issues, for uh, domain awareness, and we don't want to know where your nuclear submarines might be or warships, but we do want to know where your Solus and Marpole-class ships are and when they're coming into our region, particularly like Bering Strait or, or in the European Arctic. And then finally, another item is a more technical issue. We talk about emissions, but there is a need to, 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 to note, I think, a portion off the Arctic Ocean as a emission control area. There are others in the Baltic, in the Mediterranean, uh, around North America. Uh, it's an opportunity to, to, to uh, take a look at through a task force. Maybe it could be under PAME, this very specific issue, which is uh, having an emissions control area. And then finally, my cartoon, not, not as nice as, uh, as good as uh, John's, but, but nonetheless, my cartoon of what the future might hold for the Arctic and the Arctic Ocean uh, and use of the place. Thank you. We have time for one question, so we don't slip too far off. So let me off the hook. Whoever has their shot, make it a good one. Does anyone have a question for Dr. Brigham? Or he was so comprehensive, you're just stunned. Dave Bolton, thank you very much. Dave. No, here it comes. <laughs> Get no, ready. Yeah, it would be, would be uh, Ambassador Bolton. Actually, I wonder if you can go back some slides to the one that showed the Bering Strait. Oh, yes. Let's see here. With the data. Yeah, right there. That one. Mm -hmm. So there is a process underway in the US, right, to deal with part of the strait on our side of the line. Um, and there are a number of people that are talking to me saying we uh, should do more to work with our colleagues in Russia to develop a comprehensive set of rules for transiting the Bering Strait region and take that together to IMO as sort of an add-on to the polar code. Um, what is your view of that? You, uh, how important is this? Um, yeah. Well, it, it, it is important, and you're right, it has to be, since it's an international strait, IMO agreed upon voluntary measures, it won't be mandatory. My, my problem with it all is it's very difficult because of the intersection of all the marine uses. When you overlay indigenous use, I would say it's impossible to figure out routes. The routes that IMO are supportive of and the Coast Guard are working on are about marine safety somewhat on the safety of the ship and the people, a little bit about marine pollution. So, so that doesn't fit with the paradigm of the place of having ships uh, intersecting with indigenous issues. How does that play into the IMO rules and regulations? It doesn't, and, and how do we mix that in? Because of course the 30-some communities on the Russian side have a play in this. It's a challenging issue. It, it should be addressed now, because it's a long-term issue as you have maybe seasonal extension on the Russian side, and how that traffic will interrelate with the west end of St. Lawrence Island and uh, indigenous use actually out on the ice, a very local uh, kind of parochial interest. But no, it's, it's an important issue to deal with, and maybe we deal with it now before the traffic might ramp up any higher. Uh, it probably wouldn't be part of a polar code per se, because it's a, there's a whole regime related, but not regime, conventions related to routing 
uh, even in ice-covered waters. So it's a good issue, good topic, uh, good, uh, topic certainly for cooperation of the two Arctic states in this part of the world. It's ripe for cooperation. Thank well, you. again, please join me in thanking Lawson for a great presentation. Now, please don't go anywhere. I'd like to invite our panelists and moderator, and uh, we're going to continue that conversation. And that's actually a great chart to show because we're going to talk about economic development uh, in the Arctic. And uh, we'll let our panelists get seated. A little set change here. And perhaps while everyone's getting seated, let me introduce our moderator, uh, our, our very good colleague, Dr. Marlene Laurel. Uh, Marlene is actually participating uh, very actively in our uh, current project on the Russian Arctic and, and the International Cooperative Framework. Dr. Laurel is a research professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and had a very exciting journey last summer to, to uh, Norilsk, and, uh, but uh, has been doing uh, extremely uh, important research work on migration patterns in the Arctic and urbanization in the Arctic. So with that, Many thanks to my colleague, Marlene, and thank you, panelists. Uh, we know this is going to be a great discussion. Thank you, Heather, for your nice introduction. It's my pleasure to chair this panel entitled Understanding Economic Trends in the Arctic. I think our keynote speaker already introduced us a lot about on the shipping issues and this maritime youth of the Arctic. We will come back uh, uh, to that uh, during the discussion because we will touch the, the cruise business in the Arctic, but we will be also looking at the other side of these economic uh, trends, uh, uh, which are the, the incredible uh, boom of uh, extractive industry the, uh, uh, in the Arctic. And of course, both are partly linked. Uh, because once you extracted something, you need to send it uh, uh, somewhere. You can send it by land lanes, but you also uh, mostly send it by sea lane. So, so both are lanes. I think this, uh, uh, looking at these economic trends in the Arctic, it's really something absolutely uh, uh, central. And that's really the moment where domestic and international factors meet. That's also the moment where state and private actors interact. And that's really something important. That's also the moment where science and technology and geopolitics have to interact. And also something which I think is very uh, important is the moment where human beings have to be put back in the uh, global picture because to uh, develop the region, you need not only infrastructure, you need human beings and you need not only, not only to look at indigenous people, you also have a lot uh, 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 a lot, uh, sorry, uh, a lot of people, other kind of people to look at going from tourists to uh, labor migrants. So I think we will be touching very important issues during this panel. And for that, we have three uh, speakers. And I would like first to give the floor to uh, uh, our first speaker, Mr. D David Hayes, who is a senior fellow at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and distinguished visiting lecturer at the Stanford Law School. Is also serving as the vice chair of the Advisory Council on Wildlife Trafficking, which has been established by President Obama last year. And before that, he served as the deputy secretary on the depart at the Department of the Interior, where he was the chief operating officer and second in command to the secretary. And he has a long experience looking at environment, land, resources, and energy, and how they interact uh, uh, in the Arctic. So the floor is yours. 
Thank you very much, uh, Marlene. Um, so I'll use my 10 minutes or so uh, to talk about some economic trends, uh, albeit uh, from a bit of a U.S.-oriented perspective, so forgive me for that. Uh, it was the Department of the Interior uh, that I was uh, Deputy Secretary of and not the Department of, of uh, State. Um, but as Dave knows, I do tend to sometimes blur those lines. Um, I'd like to uh, talk uh, first about energy, uh, secondly, a little more briefly about uh, shipping and uh, transportation, uh, in part uh, because we had such an excellent uh, discussion a few minutes ago, um, uh, briefly about fishing and mining. Um, then I want to talk about science as an economic trend in the Arctic. Uh, and finally, uh, a topic that's usually not talked about as an economic topic is subsistence in the Arctic, and that's the people piece here. Let's talk about oil and gas first. Uh, it is the big kahuna in terms of economic drivers uh, in the Arctic. There's, there's no doubt about it. We see it in Alaska. And, and I think that uh, there is a tendency, and I share this tendency in part because of my role in oversight for, former role in oversight for potential offshore drilling of, of the uh, North Slope, there's a tendency to think about this just as an offshore activity. But the reality is that oil and gas is firmly rooted uh, terrestrially in the Arctic, with Alaska being uh, Exhibit A. Uh, and in fact, there is, we are about to double down, I think, in terms of investment in oil and gas in, the, in Alaska onshore. Uh, why? Number one, Alaska is changing their tax code uh, pending a, a, a possible uh, ballot uh, uh, challenge this fall. But the, the governor signed a bill to change the tax, tax code, which had uh, discouraged U.S. companies from doing the type of additional investments to get the additional oil in the ground, out of the ground. And Prudhoe Bay has plenty of that oil available, but it's not been economic to pull it out of the ground. It will be now. Uh, and you are also seeing the potential for shale oil uh, in uh, the uh, uh, terrestrial in the, in the American Arctic. And, of course, you're seeing the expansion westward into the National Petroleum uh, Reserve, with ConocoPhillips now moving forward with the first development in the uh, National Petroleum Reserve. Uh, all of these factors uh, are, are significant new investment, uh, uh, it, it likely, in, in the American Arctic. And then, of course, you have the potential huge play that is now moving along really quite sprightly, uh, at least relative to how these huge plays move forward, and that being the potential for a gas uh, line from the North Slope, where there's 35 trillion cubic feet of, of stranded natural gas, uh, bring it down to the Cook Inlet and put it on LNG tankers and send it to Japan. I note that it's a lot closer to get from Cook Inlet to Japan than it is from Norway to Japan. Um, and we're talking about a 40 to $60 billion investment. We have the state of Alaska talking about a quarter, taking a quarter investment in that. And you have, for the first time in the last two years, um, a former skeptic in Rex Tillerson of ExxonMobil talking about the potential for this to happen, along with ConocoPhillips and BP. You've got big players seeing a new worldwide uh, uh, opportunity for natural gas. On the Russian side, 
you see huge investment as well. And the, at the World Petroleum Conference a, a week or so ago in Moscow, there was a lot of talk about uh, Rosneft, for example, talk about $300 billion in offshore development. They also talked about $80 billion in onshore investment in the Siberian and Far East in order to feed the, the new relationship with China. Uh, you're going to see a lot more oil and gas development in Russia onshore. And then the offshore stuff is also obviously in play. We don't know if uh, on the U.S. side uh, Shell will return. They, they talk about it. Um, obviously, uh, they have found the challenges in the Arctic. Uh, we have in Russia, though, uh, operating uh, platforms uh, in ice-filled waters and a big commitment that was, again, uh, just uh, reconfirmed uh, at the uh, petroleum uh, meeting in Moscow last week. We're talking tens of twenties of billions of dollars of potential investment. This is the big story because I think oil and gas um, brings with it uh, all of the special challenges uh, in the Arctic. Uh, and I cannot, uh, as a former regulatory official, I cannot underscore enough the challenges and concerns related to the uh, a lack of infrastructure to deal with an accident uh, on the oil and gas side. We've seen it terrestrially, obviously offshore, the stakes are much higher. Uh, as someone who uh, was the first administration official down in the Gulf of Mexico after the Macondo well blowout, um, I can tell you even when we have huge infrastructure capability, we can have an environmental disaster on our hands. Um, so this is going to be a big play. Well, now let me switch for a second and talk about renewable energy uh, because there's a tendency to think only about conventional oil and gas when it comes to the Arctic. Um, uh, one of the jobs I had at, in the administration was to coordinate uh, for the president under an executive order American policy when it came to energy in Alaska. And we looked at the renewable side. and. I think there are tremendous opportunities here. We have the irony and the tragedy of many of the local off-the-grid villages in the Arctic having to rely on very expensive, difficult, unhealthy diesel fuel. Now, we've got tremendous wind resources in the Western, uh, U.S. Western Arctic. Uh, there are also surprising solar resources uh, some of the year. Um, there have been uh, halting efforts. Alaska, state of Alaska, deserves some credit for its renewable energy program. But after about 25 years, we have maybe 20 or 22 villages out of 250 in Alaska that have a renewable energy component to them. We have the opportunity, I think, and we launched a couple of years ago with the National Renewable Energy Lab, the possibility to bring to the Arctic the equivalent of the wood stove in Africa, which is a modular, expandable, uh, uh, standardized approach to have a hybrid uh, uh, renewable energy and diesel uh, uh, operation that can be essentially dropped into villages and utilized with standardized parts, et cetera. Uh, at the National Renewable Energy Lab is developing that. I think there's a tremendous possibility for that, and I hope the U.S. Will, will pick up on that, perhaps with its chairmanship. Shipping and transportation, I think, has been covered and will be covered by others, and so I'm going to uh, move uh, from that. I will just say, though, that the same issues of infrastructure uh, that we have for oil and gas uh, accidents, I think, apply here. Uh, and. Uh, 
in, in fact, the Coast Guard folks will tell you they're more worried about the a marine incident uh, when it came to, for example, the shell uh, uh, drilling uh, than, than, than an oil and gas uh, incident. And uh, again, you have no, no real capability uh, unless you're carrying it with you. And if the, if the vessel you're carrying it with you goes down, you're in uh, real uh, trouble. And there needs to be, back to Ambassador Bolton's point in the beginning, we have a search and rescue capability or a, a framework, but we have no capability. We have uh, s some early frameworks on oil spill response, but really no shared capability. This is a huge problem, particularly given the investment size. Fishing and mining, I think, uh, at least for the U.S. side, uh, uh, we have the Red Dog Mine. I don't think we have a lot more at this point. Fishing, uh, we're interested in having a slowdown until we figure out what's going on up there. Um, final point on shipping, though, and, and this related infrastructure business, um, there's going to have to be a deep water port, I think, in the U.S. at some point. And, and watch out for the, take a look at that. Let's make sure we do that right. Two final things, because I want to make sure I don't use too much of my time. I want to put science-related uh, economic activity on the list uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, at least in my vantage point uh, when I was in the administration, there is a huge amount of science happening in the Arctic. And if you go to Barrow in the middle of the summer, you're going to find scientists crawling around, you know, bunking with the uh, local folks and, and uh, uh, and, and at the former Pepe's, I don't know what happens now after that burned down, but uh, in any event, the, there is a, uh, and the, the National Science Foundation, many NGOs are pumping a huge amount of money into Alaska because of climate change and how rapidly Alaska is changing. And I think we should celebrate that focus on science that is occurring in the Arctic. Ironically, the National Science Foundation's budget, now this is a couple of years old, they had something like $300 million a year going to the Antarctic, a lot of that because of their base down there, and about 10% of that to the Arctic, $30 million. It arguably should be a little more balanced, and I think you're going to uh, see that. And I use, I use uh, uh, the focus on science to, to, to remind us that the ec an economic trend uh, that is occurring and that the science is showing us is the fact of climate change. And, and I agree uh, that it's certainly not the only factor that is opening up shipping and, and the commodity prices, et cetera, are, but physically it is the, the loss of sea ice in some months of the year is creating the opportunity uh, for much of this activity, and certainly for exploration in the Chukchi and, and Beaufort Seas, which were, really was not capable of being done a few years ago because of, of sea ice. Um, and in that regard, I think some of the science investments we're going to, related investments we're going to make, and I'm pushing this a little hard, but deal with the climate impacts in Alaska. And I mentioned uh, uh, permafrost. We're losing, to the extent there's infrastructure uh, in the Arctic, it's being affected by uh, the, uh, the instability that comes from permafrost thawing. You've got coastal erosion, big time, Shishmaref, which Thad Allen and I visited in 2010, is, is, uh, is, is, is being lost to the sea. The loss of sea ice has increased the pounding of the, of the uh, surf, and, and you're losing those barrier islands, and obviously wildlife impacts. 
which gets me to the final economic trend that I think we all need to keep uh, pay attention to, which is the, the economic necessity for native Alaskans and indigenous peoples in the Arctic to continue their subsistence way of life. Let's not forget about, that's a, that's a real economic uh, uh, reality uh, for uh, in the Arctic, and we need to make sure that as we talk about other economic trends, we don't somehow roll over that. I'll stop there, and I'll look forward to questions after the other presentations. Thank you. Thank you so much for this terrific overview, this fast-changing picture of the oil and gas extraction in the Arctic. We will come back on that, I'm sure, during the discussion. Now, I would like to turn to our toward our second. Uh, speaker, Mr. Bud Da, who is currently Senior Vice President at the, uh, of Technical and Regulatory Affairs at Cruise Lines International Association. He also held several posts before that with the U.S. Coast Guard, where he was Deputy Chief and Attorney in the Office of Environmental and Maritime Law for several years. And he also served in the U.S. Uh, uh, Navy, where he focused on nuclear issues. So, Bud, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, I think I recall a few moments ago, uh, tourism in uh, the U.S. Arctic being insignificant. Um, I'm very comfortable with my own skin, and, and actually I think that is a, um, a, a pretty fair statement of what it is. So um, I'm going to show you just a couple of slides and explain a little bit about how the cruise industry works and how the cruise industry population in the Arctic and the activities there is likely to be affected or not affected by uh, climate changes or oceanographic changes. Um, just briefly about our association, um, we've undergone massive change in the last two years or so where we've swept under one cohesive umbrella under the name Cruise Lines International Association or CLIA, a variety of associations around the world. We're still quite honestly finding them springing up in little places uh, that we didn't know they existed before and, and wrapping them in. And the idea being um, the industry should be able to speak with one voice on policy issues and develop policy together and execute policy and regulations. Um, it's been very useful uh, since we've done that and uh, give you a picture of what that looks like. There's one exception, there's one association based in Florida that we cooperate closely with, but um, is not actually technically part of CLIA. But you can see we now have a presence all over the world, and what that's allowed us to do as an industry is engage at the local level much more effectively, um, make sure that the local communities and the local regulators understand what our industry is about, how it functions, how it doesn't function, and then bring that all together and take the best of the best ideas and bring them forward on a global level, uh, particularly through, say, the International Maritime Organization or other international organizations such as WHO, ILO, or even ICAO at times. Um, what does that mean? Uh, 63 cruise line members uh, representing over 95% of the global cruise capacity. Inside that 63, it's a little bit of a misleading number, is a significant number of river cruise operators, which are very different and not really germane for this topic. Um, but there's you know, roughly or so, depending on how you add them up, maybe 40 plus mainstream cruise line operators. That's 95% of the global cruise capacity. Um, what's missed in that is some just little odd or maybe transient types of expedition uh, cruise operators or very small cruise operators. Um, it doesn't add up to a large portion overall, percentage-wise, of the capacity. But nonetheless, it's a community that we're constantly trying to reach more effectively. And the globalization has allowed us to do that. So for example, 
Before we undertook this globalization project, um, if we had a policy, an industry-wide policy, we could reach about 80% of the international cruise community. Um, now we can get to 95% directly as members and make these things conditions of our membership and effectively reach the regions where the others are operating that might not be members. And we're constantly receiving queries from people outside of our association that do want to follow our policies. So it's been very successful. Um, there's also a community of about 50,000 travel agents and 250 executive partners, um, not particularly germane for this. Um, I only put this slide up because um, when I first took this job a couple of years ago, um, this easily fit on one slide. Um, now it barely fits on two. Um, it really has made a big difference as to how many organizations we can reach. Just to give you an idea of what the picture looks like of global deployments, this is capacity. Um, in lower berth capacity, which basically means two people to a room. It's a standardized unit of judging um, the size of our industry. Um, and of what might be germane for this discussion, really most of it falls in Alaska, and even at that, it's really only the northern, very northern tip of where we might go, because basically there's no cruise interest. There's not something to see where the oil and gas industry and fishing industries are so um, closely involved in their in their evolution and development. We basically stop at Cook Inlet and then go south. Those are the things that our customers want to see. But you can see even at that, um, it's a declining market share overall. Um, that has a lot to do with um, economic factors such as fuel costs. Um, very popular, it'll probably stay at about that number, but I don't see it becoming a rapidly larger number um, anytime in the near future. What is growing rapidly is Asia. And I think uh, that 2015 number, if I had a crystal ball, and I do not exactly, um, I would tell you that number is going to be substantially bigger in Asia. Um, Australia as well is a rapidly growing market. Um, this slide, I only put this one because I'm going to superimpose the, the polar code. If we think of the Arctic in terms of the Arctic Circle, which might be a bit too narrow of a view anyway, but um, if we think of the Arctic Circle, it looks like that. It's nice and clean. If we take a look at the IMO polar code, not nice and clean. Dips farther south in some places, dips farther north in others. Um, there's a substantial difference in what's covered. But what's within the polar code for us where we tend to operate in the northern high latitudes is uh, Greenland and Svalbard. And again, I mentioned we get right up to the margins in Alaska, but it's not as if we go deep into that region because beyond Cook Inlet, just is simply not of, of, of that much interest to us. Um, you'll note in the polar code what's excluded is Iceland, uh, northern Norway, uh, certain parts of Alaska. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of politics and economics that went into drawing these boundaries. Um, the good news is I think that the polar code is going to be effective. I think I, I think it might have been a little bit of a misstatement to say we don't have regulations that govern shipping in, in the Arctic, and same is true for the southern high latitudes. I think we do, um, but I think it's, it's a question of are they fit for purpose, and I think um, Governments have answered that question. Um, no, that's why we have a polar code that's adding additional requirements. I think the mechanism of amending the fundamental conventions, which are basically MARPOL and SOLAS, is a good one, um, but it's gonna leave some gaps. It's gonna leave some gaps because the applicability isn't the same. So for example, uh, the SOLAS convention um, and the way the amendments are worded will not necessarily cover a vessel that is departing from and arriving back to the same port. That's not an international voyage for the purpose of the Solace Convention. And so um, there's a universe of ships out there, I would argue the overwhelming majority of them, 
that potentially might not be covered at least initially. I know governments are seized of this. They'll look at it. The good news from our industry is it's not going to affect us. Um, we, we are going to operate uh, within the polar code. It would be just untenable for us to think of a scenario where we would utilize that where we just go back and forth and not be on an international voyage. But with MARPOL, it's also nuanced and it's different from chapter to chapter as to what that means. So just exactly what the full scope of the coverage is, is, is something that actually will not probably be fully understood till the code's implemented. But we've been involved for many years in the development of that code. Um, we're very optimistic that in the end, it's gonna strike the right balance between being allowed to maintain sufficient capacity to meet the demand that's up there um, and in the southern high latitudes as well, but yet provide these extra protections and safety and the environment, which are so important. And, and we very much agree with those goals. It's just been a matter of working through some of the more difficult details. Um, I did want to talk about itinerary selection because I think it goes to my fundamental point of things are not going to change real rapidly with regard to the cruise industry um, either in the high northern or high southern latitudes, but let's talk about the high northern. And, and the reason why is our industry functions very successfully over time in large part because of its flexibility and the mobility of the assets. So for example, um, if I build a billion dollar resort asset, uh, leisure asset in Las Vegas, and the economy, let's just say, becomes real poor in Las Vegas, I'm stuck with a billion dollar asset in a place that really there's no demand for. Well, our industry isn't quite like that. If I build a billion dollar cruise ship, which is not an unreasonable number at all these days for the typical sizes that are being built, if the market conditions change or the regulatory environment changes or some other extrinsic driver changes, I go somewhere else. You know, I take the ship um, to a place that will also be able to accommodate the operation of that ship. So um, consumer demand is connected to that as to how we select where we'll go. Um, nobody has to buy what we're selling. You might have to get on a plane to go to Los Angeles if you live on the East Coast. You do not have to take a cruise. No, none of our customers have to buy what we're selling. So if the demand's not there and we're not satisfying what they really want and providing it at a price that actually makes sense, we don't have a business, we don't need to talk about this or have this discussion. Fortunately, we do, and we do to some degree in the Arctic. Operating costs are a significant part of what we look at. If fuel costs are particularly high or port costs are particularly high, uh, we'll choose somewhere else to go where the itinerary simply makes more sense. I had a, a CEO of a very large company explain it to me really well one time. He said, look, bud, he said, my job for the last 12 years has been to identify the 21 best itineraries that I have. Number 22 does not get a ship. Number 23 does not get a ship. So even though the margins might be kind of thin between being above and below the line, it's kind of binary. It either works or it doesn't from an economic standpoint. The logistics chain is very important. If you've ever seen a cruise ship on a turnaround day, it is an extraordinary thing to watch. Um, massive amounts of material has to go on, come off, passengers have to be moved on, moved off, immigration's got to be cleared. All these things has to hap have to happen. Um, you have to have the support there to do that in way of infrastructure. And mainstream cruising, uh, in my opinion, uh, will probably never have sufficient infrastructure for that to be a wide-scale enterprise up there. Predictability, another important factor. And uh, I sell a cruise in my industry 12 to 36 months in advance. And it's a vacation of a lifetime. 
for a lot of people taking these cruises. And an Arctic cruise is a niche. Um, it is correctly described as a niche. It tends to run about $1,000 per day per person as a typical value. Okay, so a person gives me $12,000 for the vacation of a lifetime, and I just say, I can't go, sorry, the ice is too bad. I'm not gonna be in that business very long. So it's gonna remain a small niche because of the lack of flexibility because conditions will change. Destinations of interest, our people wanna go ashore. The ship, with some exceptions, and, and the trend is actually changing a little bit, but generally speaking, destinations drive our itineraries and not the ship itself. People want an interesting place to go ashore and that can handle um, a significant number of people ashore at one time comfortably. If they don't have a good experience because they feel crowded, they're not coming back. They're not gonna be customers very long. Again, don't need to have this discussion. Shore excursion availability, again, requires infrastructure and economic catalyst to do that in a particular area. Um, embarkation and debarkation ports that are convenient and have good air access in and out and perhaps have places where people would wanna stay for a few days on either end. All of this is for the purpose of telling you that although it is a successful niche market, they tend to be specialized ships the ones, that go, um, the ones that go very far north tend to be heavily reinforced icebreakers. And um, I don't see that changing quickly anytime soon. It's gonna remain a high price niche in our market. Um, the larger ships tend to go as a repositioning measure, like say for Greenland, if they're gonna take a northern route east or west across the Atlantic. So I think I've consumed all the time that I was allocated. I hope you found that useful to understand how our industry works. And I thank you for your attention. I look forward to any questions you might have. Thank you so much for this great presentation. You made us travel, it's really nice. Uh, our, now our last but not least speaker for this uh, panel, Mr. Uh, Inutek Olm Olsen, who is uh, currently Minister Plenipotentiary for uh, uh, Greenland on behalf of the Royal Danish Embassy. Before assuming his current post, he served as a senior advisor to the Danish Ministry of on Foreign Affairs on Arctic and North American. Uh, affairs. He also had several positions in Greenland government, most notably he was deputy minister for the government of Greenland for almost one decade and he managed Greenland's relation with the European Union and represented Greenland to the EU in Brussels. So the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much, Malin. And um, first of all, uh, thank you for inviting me and uh, to or for organizing this event. I'm going to turn the attention slightly, you know, away from the US and uh, to, to Greenland. So. Um, and uh, first of all, I'd, I'd like to explain just shortly, you know, what, uh, what uh, Greenland uh, um, is and um, what it is that uh, we are planning, you know, in terms of, I'll come back to the uh, title of this uh, panel. Um, Greenland is a self-governing autonomous part of the Kingdom of Denmark. Um, we gained home rule in 1979 and, uh, you know, we are in this long-term uh, state-building exercise, you can say, um, we renegotiated the, uh, the agreement we had with Denmark, and uh, this led to a new self-governing act in 2009. Uh, our goal and interest in, um, in developing Greenland is to, first of all, you know, become um, economically self-sufficient. Uh, we currently receive about 600 million US dollars in, uh, from Denmark. And um, um, our aim is also to, you know, develop Greenland politically as a nation um, and economically. And that's where, um, you know, the, um, the focus on um, the uh, natural resources comes in. Um, 
we have been working on developing um, our natural resources uh, for the last uh, decades, actually. I mean, when, we, when you talk about Arctic, you know, uh, some people tend to think it's a wild, wild west, but it's not the case. It's, it's something that we have been building on uh, for many years. Um, economically, fisheries continues to be the dominant uh, uh, factor in Greenland, in, uh, which is, has been the case since the 1960s. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, it's too dangerous, basically, to rely only on fisheries um, economically. So that's why we are building on developing the natural resources uh, sector. Um, and, I mean, to, um, to echo what uh, David Hayes said about re renewable energies, I mean, it's, it's something uh, that we've also been focusing on because uh, using hydropower uh, uh, for the energy-intensive industries is something that has potential as well. Uh, especially in Greenland, uh, and we've been negotiating, and there's still ongoing negotiations with Alcoa on, uh, on building an aluminum uh, smelter based upon uh, using energy from uh, hydropower. And also, you know, for electricity purposes, it's, uh, we've been focusing on building up our hydropower potential for, uh, for the population, and currently 70% uh, of our electricity needs are covered by hydropower. Um, as I said, you know, um, I'm going to mainly focus on the uh, natural resources area here. Uh, in 2010, uh, Greenland undertook the, you know, under the self-government framework, we took over the sole competence uh, of our natural resources, including revenue stemming from those. Um, and um, currently, there are five um, projects that are in advanced stage. Since 2002, we have been awarding over um, 150 licenses, exploration licenses in the mineral sector. And now we're seeing the, um, you know, the, the maturations of, this, of, of these uh, licenses. Um, you know, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to explain in short, you know, uh, the different uh, projects that uh, are up and, up and coming. Uh, when it comes to uh, oil and gas, uh, we've been awarding 23 license blocks offshore uh, with, different, with 14 different companies involved. Uh, the, the participating companies include some of the world's largest oil corporations. Um, a total of 14 wells have been drilled uh, in Greenland waters since the 1970s, and uh, we expect more during the course of the next uh, few years. But it's still an, um, an area that's in its infancy and many challenges lies ahead. Uh, in 2010 and 2011, eight drillings were carried out along the west coast of Greenland. And the result of these drillings was a confirmation that there is oil and gas in the area, but not yet found in commercial quantities. Along the east coast of Greenland, uh, bidding, took, uh, bidding rounds took place last year, and uh, at the end of 2013, four blocks were awarded to three consortiums consisting, among others, of Statoil, ConocoPhillips, BP, Chevron, and Shell. But it's the mining sector, as I said, that's uh, showing the most um, uh, potential in the foreseeable uh, future. Um, on the granting of new mining permits, we have decided for the go-ahead for the iron ore project and the rubies project, 
Um, the iron ore is a so-called large-scale project, uh, which consists of a minimum five billion uh, US dollars in investment in the construction period. Um, it's going to take time to develop that because uh, we've been also hit, you know, by the uh, worldwide com um, economic uh, downturn, um, and it's really difficult. Uh, I think it's, or it's one of the biggest challenges for the companies is to find investors. And for such a large project, it's going to take time. For the Rupees project, it's, it's a smaller scale mine, so therefore that's you know, going to be that's going to materialize uh, much sooner. Uh, but we also have two two of the world's largest known deposits of, of rare earths are located at the uh, southern tip of Greenland, and these are also in an advanced stage. Uh, we have yet to receive an application. Um, for exploitation, but we expect th uh, that in the coming future. Uh, it's it's d difficult to say exactly uh, when they're going to come in, but they're going to. Uh, but we expect them to come in soon. All mining projects have to be environmentally and socially sustainable, uh, and it's important, you know, to involve the local population uh, uh, along the coast where the mining projects are, are going to be. So comprehensive hearings you know, are also part of this process. And both society and the companies will receive a fair share of the profits. Um, impact and benefit agreements uh, will be made for all mining projects to ensure maximum local employment, uh, maximum involvement of Greenland companies, and enhancement of skills and competences of the workforce. And with regard to the taxation of the, the mining projects, royalties will have to be paid on turnover. But at the same time, uh, we intend to reduce the corporate uh, tax for the relevant mining companies. So there will be no increase in the overall taxation of these projects. But, and this is based upon negotiations uh, with each individual license holder. Um, we continue to be a very competitive um, country in this area based upon a benchmark analysis we undertook uh, comparing Greenland to a variety of other mining countries. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's imperative for Greenland to develop the natural resources uh, sector, as I said in the beginning, both to develop the society but also the economy but also because we are uh, combating a rising unemployment uh, these years. The un unemployment figures have risen from uh, 4% uh, to 9%, to over 9% in the last few years. So it's something you know, that we need to develop uh, also to, for diversification purposes. And uh, when it comes to you know, the economic trends in the Arctic, I think we are seeing a truly globalized um, market forces in play here uh, when it comes to which countries who have interest in, in the Arctic. Uh, as an example, I mean, is Australia is the number one country uh, on the number of licenses who have, uh, of, the, of the number of licenses in Greenland. But we're also seeing new actors, uh, new economic uh, actors coming in, not most notably um, South Korea and China which are showing uh, interest as, as, and we already heard you know, in the previous panels, uh, the interest uh, with regard to China and South Korea you know, uh, in, the commercial, uh, in the scientific uh, sector, but it's also true in the, in the economic uh, sector. And I think with those words, I'll, I'll end here.
Thank you so much. Greenland is really a fascinating case, I think a unique one in terms of this interaction between economic development and nation building or state building. It's really history in the making <laughs> uh, that we can see uh, um, now. So all our speakers were very respectful of the time allowed and my job was really easy. So now we have a, a really time for a discussion. I'm sure we'll have several questions and comments on uh, all these uh, dynamics related to uh, uh, energy, minerals and shipping. So we welcome uh, your comments, please. Yeah, wait, the microphone is arriving. Oh, one is here. Hi, could I just ask a very quick question to any of the panelists? Uh, Inatec, you just mentioned uh, unemployment, but I'm just wondering, uh, in the extraction industries, oil and gas, shipping, how much is there in the way of real job creation, you know, for indigenous people? Uh, is, is labor being imported? Are these jobs transitory? So what, what impact is this going to have for indigenous people? Um, it's something that we are very focused on developing. I mean, in terms of uh, the workforce and the training them to be part of this. Uh, I mean, it's an ongoing process to involve both local companies, but also the workforce uh, um, and engage them because, I mean, uh, it's crucial that, I mean, the, that employment, as, as much local employment uh, takes place because, uh, I mean, the worst thing for us is, you know, to, to become spectators of the development. That being said, as I say, um, there are some large-scale projects, uh, like I said, uh, for example, the iron ore, where these are so large, you know, that the local uh, employment um, um, is, is insufficient, and where you have to import, uh, during the construction period, um, a workforce from other countries to, um, to come in and, uh, and construct these, you know, um, mining projects. Um, there's, an, um, there's a new act that's just been adopted uh, just actually last month, uh, the so-called Large Scale Act. It had to, I mean, it passed the Greenland Parliament, but it also had to pass the Danish Parliament because um, the wor foreign workers' um, permit, you know, is still a Danish competence, so that, that's why it, has to, it had to pass the, the, the Danish Parliament. But now that's in place, you know, it's, it, it talks about, uh, well, it deals about, it deals with um, which rights and, you know, um, under which conditions these foreign workers, you know, can come in. But I, I want to, uh, you know, pinpoint, it's only during the construction phase. The operational phase is different. There you need much less. Um, when we talk about, uh, for example, the iron ore project in the, the um, um, we're talking about, um, two to 3,000 workers during the construction period, but seven to 800 during the operational period. So we don't expect, you know, um, so I think, you know, we're looking at it, you know, from that perspective on as well, um, and engage, you know, the workforce in the, um, in the operational uh, uh, phase. If I can uh, give a, uh, a perspective on the U.S. Uh, experience there. This will be highly generalized, but um, certainly uh, the major oil companies uh, working in the Prudhoe Bay Area make an attempt to hire uh, some Alaska natives. Um, but the large bulk of the employees are fl flying back and forth every two weeks uh, uh, 
uh, from Dead Horse back down to Fairbanks. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and the reality is that the, uh, the Alaska villages um, near the, the job center, if you will, are, are few uh, and, uh, and typically uh, unconnected by roads. <laughs> uh, another observation here, there, there is a, a, a particularly challenging situation that's embedded in the question. Um, because on the North Slope, um, taxes uh, from the extraction activities are uh, hugely important to the budgets of the, uh, 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 the Alaska Native villages uh, around the North Slope. And there, although there are, and there are some jobs associated in, in those villages as well, but few, but there is a reliance on the income, uh, the tax income from the oil and gas activities, which creates, and I've, I've seen it particularly in the last two or three years, some act, some real tension between the, 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 the traditional subsistence culture of those, uh, in those villages, uh, and the recognition that oil and gas money is needed to support those communities, and the and it's 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 a and you can see it playing out. Uh, so it's a it's a complex issue and and a, a really good question, uh, Ken. There was a question. Um, thanks. Uh, my question kind of builds on Ken's. Was fascinated to hear about the uh, development plans for for Greenland, and um, and particularly in the development of uh, you know large scale mineral projects such as iron ore or aluminum. Um, I mean, my, the context for me thinking about this is, is Afghanistan. Uh, and if you're developing resources like that, uh, or any resource, you know, they have to get to markets. And for uh, resources of that, of that scale, uh, you know, unless, I mean, they typically have to be uh, transported by rail. Um, it's not, economic, not economical to do so by, by, by truck. So, you know, in addition to, first of all, having to build power generation at the, at the extraction facility, wherever that is, which is a big, a big piece of it, there also has to be uh, the development of, of rail and or other transit uh, capacity to get it to uh, port, where it can then be shipped, shipped out and and uh, made 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 money, and I guess you know when I thought of kind of thought about um, you know resource extraction in the Arctic, it was typically more about oil and gas, and you know there you, you can pipe it out. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about more about the the transit infrastructure around it, and if any others on the on the panel had comments around that uh, in other contexts besides Greenland. Uh, I'll take a, a initial pass at that. The uh, Lawson mentioned the Red Dog Mine uh, on the western North Slope uh, there in Alaska, and it is it is un unbelievable, unbelievable facility. It does provide something like 10% of the zinc of the world. Um, it is. I've done a flyover up there, and uh, there there uh, the the U.S. Arctic is shallow. There are no ports. Um, you get to the largest town, Barrow, and you're talking about skiffs and small uh, boats, and um, uh, what they do in the Red Dog Mine is is barge everything out to ships out 
you know, a couple miles, and uh, it's an incredibly inefficient process, but it obviously works uh, for that mine in part because of the scale of it. Um, but I think it also speaks to the fact that, uh, and it's really one of the reasons why I, I don't think in the U.S. Arctic we're going to see another big mine like that, at least not very soon, <laughs> just because you have to have um, a huge resource and, uh, and, and to, to justify the capital intensity of the effort. Now, if, if there, um, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, there's great interest in having some deep water port uh, on the U.S. side of the, uh, uh, in the Arctic, if only uh, when Bud's ships, uh, and they will, there will be some coming, coming up uh, through ecotourism, et cetera, you have no capability for them to refuel, to, you know, to go to shore, to, uh, to, to if there's an accident, to have rescue, uh, you know, capable rescue vessels nearby, or very limited capability, I should, have, I should say. And of course, the oil and gas industry as well. So there's a lot of talk about Port Clarence and Nome, and that region right there, where there's some natural deep water harbor. Now that could change the 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 economics uh, potentially for for resource extraction nearby. But um, as many of you know who know the Arctic, it is uh, it's a punishing environment where you have no roads, you have no railroads, you have in in the U.S. case shallow water. Uh, so getting to market is a big issue. I just add. Might add to that um, nice list that David provided. Um, the weather is not great for tourism either, so it's a hardy crowd that goes up there. Um, as far as you know, economic benefit that uh, goes, um, you know, where our industry does operate, we do tend to generate jobs. You know, on a macro scale in the U.S., I think our numbers. 340,000 U.S. jobs and $40 billion in uh, direct and indirect impact. You're never going to see that in these, in these Arctic regions, but some of the local communities that get these seasonal stops, because we can only operate there seasonally through a very short season, even with the specialized ships, do benefit a great deal, particularly when there aren't a lot of other livelihood alternatives. And um, Greenland is a good example, where even though the larger ships tend to be a very, very short window where they're typically transiting across the Atlantic one way or the other, and it makes some sense to go north, you know, people do find that interesting. They do find it interesting to meet the local culture, uh, buy the local wares and take them home, and infrastructure has to be a part of that. Somebody has to provide the launch drivers, perhaps, or um, people to, to conduct tours. And, um, and it, it is a success story if it's managed in a proper way. And I think the key is um, you can't overwhelm a community with tourists, no matter which conveyance they come in, uh, whether it's one of our ships or someone else's aircraft. Um, it's true that, you know, um, that some of the, um, for example, um, mining projects are um, away from where the infrastructure is. For example, the iron ore, but uh, it's further inland, but uh, at, the, at the end of a, a fjord, you know, 100, it's, I think it's like 100 kilometers long fjord uh, near Nuuk, but uh, it's all, uh, I mean, where you have to build a whole new infrastructure but that's all. That's part of the you know investment plan uh, as well, where you build the road uh, and build the harbor. But some of the other projects are actually you know uh, um, uh, by the ocean, uh, by the coast. I mean, uh, if you look at the you know where people live in Greenland, it's it's by the water. So I mean, 
um, we have, you know, uh, deep sea ports, of course, not huge, but it, uh, adapted to, of course, the local conditions. But um, but it's not something, you know, unusual in, in Greenlandic uh, terms, you know, to have to uh, develop um, infrastructure as, uh, as, as ports, for example. But, um, and it, it depends on each project, individual project where they are, because some of them are more challenging than others. But it's true, you know, you have to build into, uh, you know, a whole new um, town, so to speak, yeah. If I may add on the Russian case, I think this issue of transportation, it's really like the elephant in the room for the Russian uh, uh, development of its oil and gas or minerals uh, uh, in the Arctic. And you really have interesting case uh, uh, of trying to find solution. I mean, Norilsk Nickel has been able to develop his own fleet and his own port in Dudinka uh, uh, in the 90s and early 2000 when the Russian state wasn't really able to fund this kind of, of development. And I think now, if you look at uh, Rosneft and especially Gazprom uh, uh, strategy, there is really a kind of uh, a growing awareness that because of the permafrost towing, the disappearance of winter roads and of the infrastructure will just drastically change the picture for Russia. And this infrastructure will just become the key issue and the one which financially will be very challenging for the Russian state. So it's really something that is now becoming kind of the key issue for, for the long-term sustainability of this economic development. Yes. Got it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. The table's dominating at the moment. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll be next. <laughs> <laughs> draw, draw, draw. Uh, right. I just wanted to connect a few thoughts here that have come across the table. First of all, with respect to all the interest in Greenland and Alaska and Russia and elsewhere for minerals and so forth, I want to say, because the Antarctic was raised briefly by, by David, um, that there is also interest in Antarctica in that particular area. Of course, under the treaty, we have um, got an agreement where there is no exploitation of minerals uh, currently permitted. But I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things. Um, under that treaty system, it really was the first arms control area of the world. We signed that treaty in uh, 1959 at the height of the Cold War. Okay, so we're talking about cooperation right now, and I want to say that was a scientist originally driven, uh, and Admiral Byrd <laughs> as well, um, enterprise. So I think, you know, it's a way uh, enhancing, keeping science cooperation going is, is important for the world and for lots of reasons, but um, there's a good example. I, and I'll have to say that this interest in minerals has, has nations like Iran and Pakistan in the wings trying to become members of the Antarctic Treaty. We are up to 50 members, 29 consultative parties. You have to have an active and influential science presence in order to have uh, a voting uh, role for the governance in the treaty. And I would argue that the 300 million that we spend in the Arctic every year is a very cheap way of ensuring we have that presence. We did a study, just so everyone knows, about the cost per person uh, for doing this whole enterprise. We do maintain three stations year-round down there and sail ships and so forth. Um, we got on a per-person basis a cost quite comparable with our national laboratories, our major national laboratories, which is 
pretty remarkable considering where we're operating. Now that said, and I agree with David, we could certainly spend more in the Arctic, but just to, to give you the numbers, we are spending at NSF $100 million per year. 40 million of that goes towards logistics support, which is a relatively new thing for us over the last uh, decade and a half or so. And um, so, and then I want to turn to a point um, that, that uh, Ambassador Bolton raised because I also want to mention, um, commenting on David's point about money going to Alaska, as I, as I showed you on the map, the work goes on all throughout, certainly concentrated in Alaska, but also in Greenland and throughout the Arctic. And the people carrying out the research are throughout all 50 states, in addition to our international partners. I think that's particularly important because we could build on that base in this activity, among others, to raise that awareness all throughout the U.S. populace about the issues that we're discussing today. Um, and I look forward to building on that with whatever we end up deciding under the Arctic Council leadership. And, and I just, the last thing I'll, I'll say is that um, I think that, um, that it's extremely important at this juncture to raise that awareness. And I'm, my question therefore is for you, <laughs> Mr. Dar. In the Antarctic, we very favorably engaged with IATO, the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, and that's a group that have voluntarily signed on to the precepts of the treaty and making sure the tourists involved in the operation adhere to the environmental protocol and learn something about the Antarctic. So I know there's some interest in the Arctic in that regard, but I'm wondering if you can speak to what your industry has been talking about or is doing with respect to, to that element of tourism, ecotourism it's sometimes referred to. Sure, um, and to talk about um, the high southern latitudes as, as an example is, is just fine. Um, we work very closely with IATO, and our members that actually operate in the region generally, if not completely, are also members of IATO, so I work very closely with them, and in fact, we'll be meeting with them again this week, and we have a cooperative arrangement. So um, I think that our interests are, are represented through them, and we work closely with them. In the Arctic, um, our focus for the present has been on development of the polar code and helping that be shaped in a way that, that strikes that right balance. And I'm, I'm really optimistic uh, we're going to get there and that governments are going to overcome their political difficulties and get this wrapped up on the, on the timeline that was suggested. Um, there is um, an organization, um, honestly, I'm forgetting the second word in the acronym, but AECO, A-E-C-O, uh, which is based in, in Svalbard, um, that represents Arctic operators as well. We do cooperate with them, just not as formally as IATO. And uh, we certainly are, are very pleased to engage with the Arctic Council members. Um, to my knowledge, we haven't received any specific uh, request or invitation to do so, but we're happy to do that, and we certainly do so on an ad hoc basis. Um, and, and we have a, a great deal of mutual interest up there. It makes no sense for us to take uh, people who are investing uh, their trust in us, not only to provide them a safe experience, but an enjoyable experience to a place where the environment is not maintained in a, in a pristine manner. That's what they want. That's what we want to give them. Uh, if I can just uh, pivot off of your earlier comments on the science side, um, the Antarctic is a, is a wonderful example of cooperative science, uh, and the treaty and unique relationship uh, in Antarctica certainly uh, fostered that. Um, 
I think uh, I, I put science on my list of economic drivers because I think that it, particularly with climate change and the visibility of climate change in the American in the in the international Arctic, uh, its visibility in part because. It's a more populated region of the globe than the Antarctica, and, and there is also a lot of economic activity and uh, effects being seen. I think there is an, a real opportunity through the Arctic Council uh, to have more cooperative science, and actually cooperative science has been a bedrock of the Arctic Council. And, what was, and I think the U.S. leadership of the Council uh, hopefully will will underscore this and and uh, and pivot forward from it and I will mention in particular what's needed uh, I think with regard to the Arctic uh, in part because of the economic uh, drivers that we're talking about is uh, is and don't get this wrong when I say this not just science for science sake but science that can be brought to help managers make good decisions on um, what sort of management approaches to develop for lands, where to put ports, uh, that sort of thing. That's what ecosystem-based management is all about. The Arctic Council uh, has gotten that rolling. Uh, the report to the president, that, that, that uh, the interagency report that went to the president last year that I was involved in talked about integrated Arctic management. We need to bring this to life to get science available to help managers who are managing wildlife, who are, man who are helping make decisions about where big projects go or don't go, identifying protected areas, all of that. And, and uh, the, the Arctic Council, I think, has taken an important couple of steps forward. Um, other countries like Norway, who was mentioned before, um, are further along with this with their Barents Sea um, uh, ecosystem-based uh, management analysis than we are in the U.S. Um, the time is ripe, I think, uh, for more science cooperation and uh, both to understand what's going on, but also to help make good resource-based decisions on uh, which project should go forward where, recognizing the unique sensitivity of the Arctic and also uh, the unique uh, need to protect the wildlife resources in particular that are part of the subsistence culture of uh, the indigenous peoples. Hello, my name is Talia. Um, I am a student at William & Mary, and I'm going to the Arctic this summer through an organization called Students on Ice. Um, and my question for you is, uh, clearly a lot of countries are really interested, and companies are interested in getting into the Arctic um, and exploring for gas and oil. Uh, and what worries me is that the Arctic has been referred to me as kind of like a cold desert, and if there ever was an oil spill, um, it would be extremely difficult to clean up. And as Mr. Hayes pointed out right now, there's not proper regulation um, for oil spill preparedness. So how can we ensure that there's going to be enough and strict regulations before oil companies get in there? Marlene says that's for me. Uh, uh, and it, and it, it, it is. Um, <laughs> so you asked a very important question. 
uh, and, and there are two phases of uh, oil and gas exploration. Now, first, uh, as I mentioned before, folks tend to overlook the terrestrial oil and gas development, but uh, we shouldn't, because that's, that can be very challenging also. But clearly, the offshore oil and gas uh, development is the, is the riskier proposition because of the potential for uh, a spill that's difficult to, more difficult to contain than it is onshore. Um, we went through this uh, uh, over the last three years and continuing at the Department of the Interior, which regulates the uh, which regulates drilling of oil and gas uh, on the Outer Continental Shelf for the United States. Uh, and uh, basically what we required of Shell, uh, that uh, the company that was going out uh, first to uh, uh, explore the lease tracks that it had purchased for over $2 billion in the previous administration, uh, we required that Shell bring with it uh, the capability to handle a blowout, essentially. Uh, and that capability was identified and scoped based on what happened in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, meaning that uh, there essentially had to be a flotilla that accompanied the uh, exploration um, uh, uh, activity, including uh, an on-scene ship that was capable of uh, collecting and, and putting on board uh, 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 oil uh, that, would, that, that had spilled, and also uh, the capability to bring on scene within a matter of days a second drilling rig to, to, to uh, uh, put in a relief well to stop the blowout if it was continuing at that point. Um, Shell was not able to meet those requirements. It tried very hard that summer two years ago, uh, but it couldn't get the ship certified that it needed. So I think that speaks to some extent to the, um, the appropriateness, uh, of, or the seriousness, I should say, of, of, the, of the standards. And the Interior Department right now is putting these standards um, in place for all uh, drilling activities. There's a rulemaking that uh, we'll be seeing a draft of soon, I'm told. And I'm, my, it's my personal hope that uh, our unfortunate experience in the United States in terms of the Gulf of Mexico now, that was deep water drilling, uh, so it's not completely analogous, but in terms of the results of a spill and the difficulty of collecting the oil, even in an area where there, are, there were hundreds and thousands of vessels of opportunity as opposed to the Chukchi and Beaufort, I'm hoping that, that the U.S. standards will, will establish a, a bar that other nations voluntarily also adhere to. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and after uh, the oil spill uh, and with the uh, Arctic exploration, uh, there have been a number of country-to-country -country discussions about, um, about safety standards. Uh, uh, once once um, an exploration drill uh, uh, exploration has been uh, completed, then one of two things happens. You have a production well, in which case you may have ships that come out and physically get filled up and then back again, and you have enormous challenges there um, that, that really are, I think regulations have not necessarily been focusing on that sort of thing. Um, or you have an underground pipeline going to shore and more pipelines, and uh, that's potentially an easier situation to handle, but also very capital intensive. The bottom line here is that it's extraordinarily expensive, difficult, and risky to do offshore drilling in the Arctic. And uh, um, I think uh, that that message has been heard uh, in the oil and gas industry. Um, and uh, 
they have a right to try to do it under uh, appropriately tough circumstances, and I'm hopeful that uh, the U.S. Uh, experience has established appropriately tough uh, standards. Um, no, it's a good point because uh, it's, uh, um, I mean, nobody's interested in, you know, experiencing some kind of a catastrophe, uh, environmental catastrophe. But, so that's why, I mean, whenever you're dealing with uh, the Arctic, you're talking about higher standards than usual, be it, uh, you know, shipping, um, aviation, and oil and, oil and gas. Um, in Greenland, I mean, we have um, some of the most strict requirements when it comes to uh, environmental regulations. We have adopted the so-called North Sea standards uh, developed by the Norwegians, which are regarded as some of the um, highest. Um, we, I mean, we pre-qualify applicants uh, before they are admitted in the, in the process, in the application process, uh, when it comes to oil and gas licenses offshore. They have to, you know, um, they have to be of, of a certain size. They have to, you know, um, uh, show that they have experience in, in operating in, in difficult waters, for example. And, um, and after that, you know, um, when they are qualified, I mean, they have, all, when they are awarded a license, they have to have, a, for example, a double rig uh, um, operation. So, you know, if, if one rig uh, breaks, the, the other one can, can uh, fill it up. And um, I mean, among I mean, they have to show us you know different contingency plans uh, from a, a small spill to a very large one, and how they're going to uh, deal with that. And uh, we require them, for example, a, a bank guarantee of um, I think it's about 10, uh, 10 billion U.S. dollars, you know, to, so um, so they can you know so they are able to pay. At, I mean, in, should an accident happen. So um, it's something that we very much aware aware of, and it's not you know safety standards are not static. It's something that continues to develop and improve, and use of the best available technology and, and uh, you know best standards is something that we will continue to you know uh, develop and uh, and decide upon. Question coming back to the. This very noisy table. Uh, thank you all. Uh, a question first for Bud and then a question for David. Bud, you've convinced me uh, cruise ship increase is not going to happen in, in the Arctic. I always thought that as we were looking at cruise ship, uh, there was sort of a slight uptick as we were looking in, in the Arctic, but uh, your, your case was extremely compelling. But my concern is on safety and looking at some of the uh, circumstances. So Greenland, when cruise ships, uh, I, think, I believe on the West Coast, but Unitech, please uh, clarify that if that's not correct. They actually have to, cruise ships have to go in tandem. The reason they have to go in tandem is if something would happen to a cruise ship, there would not be uh, the, the search capacity, the, the capacity to rescue or offload, and that that second ship serves as uh, the fallback uh, safety ship. That's only a, a practice for Greenland because it's just a very specific ad hoc. Is there some additional, in addition to SOLAS, but is there some additional safety standards, particularly on search and rescue, that the industry is looking at from a best practices? And, and maybe this is just a very unique situation to, to Greenland and how they're approaching 
uh, cruise ship traffic. And David, very quickly, a question for you. I, I think on the question for the American Arctic of economic development, we have a great divide between the state of Alaska and the federal government about what that picture looks like. So you have Alaskan officials that are deeply interested in building that infrastructure and growing jobs. And this is my opinion. You have a federal government that is agnostic at best, but isn't quite sure, should it, shouldn't, how do we proceed? We don't have a vision for the development of our Arctic. How do you, now that you're liberated from government and you were at the cross uh, crossroads of that, that intersection between the federal and working with the state, do you see where we can come together and have a, a, a shared vision of economic development in the American Arctic, or you think we're just gonna keep state, federal, we'll just never quite find harmony on that point? Want to switch questions? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm happy to, um, to answer yours. And um, tandem operation of cruise ships, particularly in a remote itinerary, is not a reasonable solution longer term. It could work on a micro level, very short season where you have similar ships, but um, quite honestly, we just can't sell that many seats on our ships um, to have that make economic sense. It just won't work. We just won't be able to operate in those regions in the long term. Now, just because that isn't a solution <laughs> doesn't mean there isn't one, because there is. And it comes in a couple of different forms. And one is the concept of coordination. And as we have been working with the Danish government and the Greenland authorities as well, we've been emphasizing as an alternative, um, first of all, planning, which is critical. Um, if you're going to take, whether it's quite honestly, five passengers or you know, 2,000 passengers uh, to a remote location, uh, it, it's your responsibility to plan for that properly and evaluate the risks and mitigate the risks to the extent that you can. So one of the things that we've been discussing as a corollary to that with the Danish government in particular is the concept of coordination rather than tandem pairing. Um, that is a realistic possibility in a lot of the places we operate. Coordination is done in the Antarctic region now, um, but that could draw upon a variety of resources that might be in the area. And they might not all be cruise ships, um, but the key is have you evaluated the risks and have you mitigated the risks? And have you done so in a way that's tangible and that it's in uh, procedures that you can point to and that can be implemented and enforced in an objective way. And that's a critical component of how we envision the polar code functioning in both polar regions. And quite honestly, um, it's ripe ground for sharing the best practices we have right now for those few operators that are there. And I said, I don't see any large scale growth. It might mirror growth in the industry overall, but it's still gonna be a niche. It doesn't diminish in any way the responsibility for each and every single passenger we have on board, and we take that very, very seriously. We think about it every night when we go to bed. We think about it every morning when we wake up. Heather. <laughs> the, um, Heather raises a very important point. Um, uh, We're in a federalist system, and in Alaska, uh, probably more than any other uh, state-federal relationship, uh, we, have, we have friction. We have friction in part because the United States government, acting through the Department of the Interior primarily, uh, manages two-thirds of the state land, uh, including probably 70% of the Arctic terrestrial area between the National uh, Petroleum Reserve, 24 million acres, 
and the uh, national, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, was that 12 to 18 million acres, and then the gates of the Arctic National Park, et cetera, moving west, um, and of course manages the offshore, the federal offshore, three miles and out. Um, and you have a situation where the Alaska economy is almost completely dependent upon oil and gas revenue. Oil and gas revenue supplies more than 90% of the budget of the state of Alaska. And every Alaskan every year gets a check in the mail for over $1,000, a rebate from oil and gas development. So when my friends, uh, Dan Sullivan and me Treadwell, are duking it out to, uh, to, uh, for the Republican primary against Mark Begich for senator, you can bet um, that they are talking about resource development. Um, I'm a bit of a Pollyannish, and I, uh, I actually work very closely with Dan Sullivan and me, Treadwell. They're fine folks, and, and no one wants to trash the state of Alaska. Um, uh, uh, but they're, they're due, they're, um, I think you know, the federal government has to represent all of Americans, and, and I think um, we have an important role to work through the issues. This is where, this is one, and one reason I'm so committed to science, and so committed to planning. Uh, the, the biggest risks in Alaska, I think, are, are, are taking projects that come in the door and doing an up or down on that project without thinking about uh, how that fits into the ecosystem. A and uh, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. And the Department of the Interior, uh, under, under Ken Salazar and my watch, did a management plan for the 24 million acre National Petroleum Reserve and uh, set aside a huge amount of that uh, for conservation, basically. Uh, and it, it, uh, it got a lot of criticism from Alaskans, but on the other hand, the, the east side of the National Petroleum Reserve, which is, abuts the state land and is close to Prudhoe Bay, um, has oil and gas um, uh, resources and is being leased. And the president committed to lease, have a lease sale every year in the National Petroleum Reserve, and he's done that and he's gonna continue to do that. Um, we've been very sensitive about the offshore, but we've moved forward with, with standards. And in terms of the biggest project on the horizon, the gas pipeline, President Obama from the very beginning has said, we support a gas pipeline. Originally, the original pipeline at the beginning of the administration was the pipeline that was gonna come down to the lower 48. Well, that's off the table now because of shale gas uh, in the lower 48 made that uneconomic, but you, now you have a, potentially a global LNG market that, that potentially makes that economic again. So I would say there, there, there is, is more harmony than would appear from the rhetoric um, Wyoming's the same way. You know, just sort of beating the hell out of the federal government is a sure way to get a lot of votes, and you certainly have that in Alaska. But when you get behind, behind the scenes, uh, I think there's, there's, there's uh, again, I'm a little Pollyannish but on this, but there's, there's more uh, common ground than we would think. And what I do hope is that ideas like ecosystem-based management and integrated Arctic management are become more embraced. Uh, by the state uh, uh, and by the federal government. We have our own problems in the federal government with different agencies acting like different fiefdoms and creating some of the same types of conflicts that you have between the federal and state. So um, 
Yeah, good luck up in, uh, it's good that students are going to the Arctic because it'll be a civics lesson uh, at the least. <laughs> On that note, I think it's time for us to conclude this panel. We will be continuing discussing uh, economic issues in the next panel devoted to fisheries, which have always been a very traditional economic activities for the Arctic. We stop just for two, three minutes, the time for us to reorganize uh, the panel. And please join me in, in thanking our three panelists and the great discussion. Thank you.